It is indeed good to sing praises to our glorious Savior together. Amen. Amen. The current world population today is just over 7 billion people. And of the 7 billion, about 2.1 consider themselves to be Christians. And so this would include people like ourselves in the evangelical church. It would also include those in the Roman Catholic Church or various Protestant denominations, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Coptic Orthodox Church, and the list can go on of various different denominations and churches where if you would ask people involved in these various churches from various quote-unquote Christian nations and said, what is your religion? They would say, I am a Christian. Now, most of these people will be under the category of what I would consider maybe very casual, or maybe you can say cultural Christians, or maybe you can think of the word traditional Christians. And, and the sad and heartbreaking truth is that many of these religious people have never actually heard the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. But through their various religious activities, through the religion of, quote, Christianity, They are trying to earn their salvation. Now, there are others of this 2.1 billion that they have heard the gospel very clearly, and some maybe even hundreds of times since their childhood. They've heard it, and yet they have never truly repented of their sins. They have never truly trusted in Jesus alone. They have not responded to the gospel from their heart. And so they would call themselves Christians and may even attend church. And maybe they go to church because they had a a motivation that's less than pure. Maybe their motivation is because they want to impress other people or because it's the social thing to do where they're from. It's cool to go to church in a lot of places on this planet. There are people that are dangerously deceived about what it means to follow Jesus. And so millions of people alive today that call themselves Christians really have, and I say this with a broken heart, they have no idea what it means to follow Jesus. And this morning, we're going to ask and then, of course, answer a question. Now, I can't answer it for you, but you can answer before you're gone. The question is, am I a disciple of Jesus? Uh, That's the question that we have to honestly consider is, am I a disciple of Jesus? I didn't say that you have a Christian religion that you uh, adhere to. I didn't say that you have mental agreements in the Christian tenets of faith. What I'm saying is, are you a disciple of Jesus? And today we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 4 as we meditate on that. We're going to better understand what what it really looks like to follow Jesus. So what does it look like to follow Jesus? And my prayer is that for some of you in this room, that this will be nothing more than just review. I I, I agree. But for others of you, I pray that this is a truly life-changing, transforming time in God's Word that I pray God will use in your life in a powerful way. So let's read in Matthew chapter 4, Verses 12 through 22. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that when was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. As we do every week, when we read the text, we then define what is the primary truth, what is the main idea that we need to learn from this. And, and the main idea in this text is that Jesus calls people out of darkness to follow him. Jesus is pursuing men and women and boys and girls that are in darkness, as we see in this text. And he goes and he says, follow me. And so the call to follow Jesus, let's be clear, the call to follow Jesus is not a call to improve yourself. It's not self-help. It's not what it is. The call to follow Jesus is, is not a call to be a better person. That's what we think. Oh, I, I'm in religion. I'm going to get back in church. I'm going to be a better person. No, that's not what it is. That's not what it is to follow Jesus. It's not. And it's not even a call to be a religious person. Something, oh, I need to be more religious. No, that is not what Jesus says. He is not saying, come be more religious. He is calling to have a completely, radically, fundamentally changed life where you were in darkness and now you're in light. This is so much deeper, more profound, more meaningful than any religion can offer. It's a call from darkness to light to follow Jesus. And we'll look this morning on what that looks like and what, what this really means. But it's a call to focus on a person, and his name is Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to identify three characteristics of a disciple so that we can really ask ourselves the question, am I a disciple of Jesus? And there's three key words, and each one of these words gives us a helpful definition to understand what a disciple of Jesus is. So the first characteristics, the first key word is mercy. Simple. The first word is mercy. And we see this in this text. So after John the Baptist, it says, had been in prison, it says Jesus withdrew. He left and he went to the north in Galilee, and he went to Capernaum. Now, he doesn't say why in Matthew 4, but if you read the parallel text in John 4, John gives us some information on why. It says that things were getting kind of heated. It says John the Baptist was imprisoned, and Jesus left Judea, the more populated, where the elites lived, where the educated lived, where all the action was. He left Judea, and he went north to the rural 
uneducated area called Galilee. Because Jesus did not want to get into a premature confrontation with the Pharisees and the elders. Now, Jesus would have confrontations with them, but he didn't want to have one this early. He waited for later to do that. And so he leaves, and he goes to the north, and he goes to Capernaum, which is right. It's, it's, it's a coastal town. It's a fishing industry city. And he goes to Capernaum, kind of sets up base camp there for his itinerant ministry in Capernaum. And so then, what happens? It says here in verses 15 through 16 that there's this prophecy that's fulfilled. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Now, if you don't know your history, that's okay, I'll help you. Isaiah was a prophet. He lived almost 800 years before Jesus, so in the 8th century B.C. He was prophesying in in the era where the Assyrians were about to come and destroy the nation of Israel and take them exiled. And so Isaiah was saying, judgment is coming because of your sin in the form of the Assyrians. And when the Assyrians went to Israel, the first land in the north that they encountered was these two lands that he mentions here, Zebulun and Naphtali. And so these are the northernmost areas that were first hit the hardest. And so they were destroyed, decimated by the evil Assyrians. And so this, there's this quotation that now is being fulfilled in the ultimate sense by the coming of Jesus. And this northern region of Galilee was, in, was dark. It says that they're in darkness, it says. They were dark because they didn't really know much about God. The, their understanding had been lost with this exile. And so he calls them here in verse 15, Galilee of the Gentiles. And so these were Gentiles. They didn't know God. They were far from God. So this, these lands were considered dark. And, and when Jesus goes to Galilee, he's going to the wrong side of town. He's going to the place that was undesirable, the rural area that was dark and where no one that was reputable wanted to live there. These, if you're in the U.S., these are the hicks, the hillbillies, the rural, uneducated people lived in Galilee. And that's where Jesus goes, this area of darkness. And verse 16 says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned in this dark place. People there don't know who God is. It says a great light. Jesus, who is this great light, goes to people dwelling in darkness, living in shadow of death. A light has now dawned because Jesus has arrived. And so this prophecy is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so we're seeing here how the Redeemer begins his global plan to save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue that we see a snapshot of that in the Emmerich Park Zoo. And it is astounding. It, it blows me away. And I don't get over it. I don't get used to it. It is such a privilege to look into a crowd of people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And this is where it began with Jesus going to Galilee. But we live in a place, we live in an era today where people do not believe in absolute truth. People don't. It's called pluralism. There's a plurality of truths, multiple truths. 
And so it's like if I say, well, I, I prefer vanilla ice cream and you prefer chocolate ice cream, well, who's right? Well, it's preference. It doesn't matter. You pick whichever one you want. And so our world today has taken spirituality and put it in the category of preference, not absolute truth. And so you have phrases like this. Well, you, you can follow Jesus and you can be a Christian and I have my religion and, and you follow God your way and I'll follow God my way and we're both right. Think of it as a mountain. There are lots of paths up this mountain. And I'll take the path called Christianity, you take the path called Hinduism or Buddhism or Taoism or Islam, whatever you want, and, and you follow your path up and we're all going to get to the top of the mountain together. We're all going to reach God one day anyway. We're all going to the same place. We're all going to be in heaven with God together. That's a lie. It's a lie that the enemy wants us to believe. It's, it's a lie, and if it smells like smoke, it's because it's from the pit of hell. It's a lie. Because the Bible says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things. The Bible says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, and my mother conceived me. The Bible says that we're literally born in sin with a nature predisposed to sin. Little ones, already sinful. They don't fully comprehend it, but we're selfish. We are. The Bible tells us so. The Bible also says that we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and that we live in the passions of the flesh, fulfilling desires of the body and desires of the flesh, and we're by nature children of wrath that we're under God's wrath. It says, like all of mankind. And so every one of us is condemned because of our sinful nature. Left to ourselves, every one of us is rotten to the core. We are corrupted, and we're spiritually dead, and we enjoy evil, and we're lost, and we're living in darkness, and we're condemned by a holy God like the rest of mankind, it tells us in Ephesians 2. See, our, our problem, here's what our problem is. This is for all of us. Our problem is that we tend to measure our guilt on our own standards. And so if you have one person that struggles with anger and he sees a a fellow brother who blows up in anger, he's going to say, oh, well, you know, that's okay. He's not going to go tell his brother, hey, you know what? You lack self-control, brother. We need to go pray about that and ask God to help you to have self-control. No, he's not going to do that. Why? Because he has the same problem. But if that same person sees someone else that commits adultery, he's going to say, oh, well, that's not right. Well, in God's eyes, sin is sin. Now, the consequences are greater for adultery. I'm not denying that. But consequences for anger can be very serious as well. But, but we can pick and choose and be hard on people for one sin but not for another. And, and we tend to judge how guilty someone is based upon our own standards or our own struggles. But see, here's the thing. God is holy. He doesn't have any struggles with any sin. He's perfectly holy. He stands beyond that. He is all, there's all light, no darkness in God. And so, hear me if you're taking notes. The measure of your guilt depends on who the offense is against. 
The measure of your guilt is not your standard. The measure of your guilt is based upon who the offense is against. So let me give you an example. Like, I don't know about in your homes, but in my home, I've been overrun by lizards. Anyone else has that problem in their home? Only one other brother? It's weird, man. Like, I walk down my stairs, and there's lizards right there on the hallway. It's like, ah, I don't want to step on them. They're gross, little little lizard things. And then the other day, I walked in the living room, and there was a lizard that was sitting on Bonnie's chair. He was right there in the living room. I was like, okay, so I don't like these intruders coming into my home. Now, if I go and I arguably go sin against a lizard, and I go squish him like the bug that he is, right? And say, say I sin against a lizard and I kill him. What's the penalty for that? No penalty. It's just a lizard. My, my offense to the lizard it doesn't matter because the measure of our guilt depends on who the offense is against. I'm talking the ultimate spiritual capacity here. And so if you sin against, I don't know, a tree stump by kicking it or, I don't know, vandalizing it, no offense, it's a tree stump. But if you sin against a person, and if you go not kill a lizard, but if you go kill a person, the measure of your guilt depends on who the offense is against. And so now you've sinned against a person now the measure of your guilt is more significant, and you will have to pay a penalty for killing a person. When we sin against an infinitely holy God, the offense is infinite. And so now our guilt will also be infinite and eternal. You see, Psalm 51.4 says that against you, only you have I sinned and done evil in your sight. And so King David, when he's quoting that, when he's writing that, he sinned against Bathsheba by taking her to be his wife when she was married. He sinned against Uriah in killing him to take Bathsheba as his wife. David sinned against so many people. He committed murder and adultery. He sinned against people, and yet he realizes he's saying something, that when we sin, God is the most offended person, because God is holy. And so when we sin against an infinitely holy God, well, our penalty is going to also be infinite, and we deserve it. The reality of our situation is that we as human beings, are in desperate need for mercy. Desperate. So the first mark of a disciple we're looking at here is mercy. A disciple recognizes his absolute need for mercy. He realizes it. He's not self-deceived. A disciple is not trying to earn salvation. He realizes, like we see here, being in darkness, being brought to light. You see, God doesn't ask you to climb a mountain. God doesn't say, pick a path, climb a mountain, and come reach me. God says, you can't. You can't reach me. You can try. And some of you in this room, and I know you know who you are, and I pray that the Spirit of God right now is working in your heart. Some of you know that you're trying to climb that mountain. 
You really are trying on your own to reach God, to be good, to be religious. You really are trying. And deep inside, you know that you're failing. You know you can't reach God. Aren't you exhausted? Aren't you just so tired of trying on your own to reach God? Stop trying. I implore you this morning, and you know who you are. You know who I'm talking to right now. I implore you, please stop trying to reach God on your own. You can't. And deep inside, you know it. You know you can't. You see, God doesn't say, come up mountain. God came down. God came down from the mountain to reach you, to bring you up to him. That's the whole point of the gospel. That's what we sing about. This is what we live for. This is why I have breath in my lungs. This is what I live for, is to tell people the good news that Jesus came, the eternal Son of God, became a human, and he lived among us, lived a perfect, sinless life. He paid the penalty of our guilt because he is infinite, because Jesus is eternal. He could alone be the sacrifice to pay off our eternal and infinite debt. Jesus alone can do it. There's no hope apart from Jesus. He endured our wrath, our guilt on the cross. This is different from any other religion or faith on this planet. Jesus stands alone as God who came down to reach out to sinful, condemned, dead humanity, to send his spirit to resurrect dead people out of darkness into light to follow him. He stands alone. And verse 16 reminds us that people living in darkness have seen a great light. His name is Jesus. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. His name is Jesus. A light has dawned upon us. But how do we respond to this message How do we respond to God's mercy? The next verse says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. The king is here. Jesus is the king. And he demands our allegiance. He demands that we gladly and joyfully submit to him, to his rule. So how should we respond to Jesus? I'll ask it this way. How does someone become a follower of Jesus. He says in verse 17, repent. You repent. Repentance describes a fundamental transformation in someone's mind and heart their whole life where to repent means to change your direction. So you're going in one direction and you stop and you turn and you're in the opposite direction. And from that point forward, you think differently. You believe differently. You live differently. And so when Jesus here is saying repent, remember he was talking to Jewish people that had a history of of knowing who God is in, in a religious capacity. And Jews by and large believed that their family heritage, that their social status or their ability to follow certain religious rules or obligations or rituals would be enough to give them salvation to make them right before God. And so when he says, repent to a Jewish audience, which is what you see here in Matthew, 
what Jesus is saying is powerful. He is calling them to turn away from their sin, turn away from their dependence on their self for salvation. See, disciples recognize that they're in desperate need for God's mercy. A disciple is someone who basically has said, Jesus, I surrender all. I'm going to wave my white flag. I'm not going to war against you anymore. I don't want to be your enemy anymore. I wave the the white flag. I surrender. I submit to you, to your rule, because you have loved me and I have been overwhelmed by your love that you would die on the cross for me. It's overwhelming. And so a disciple recognizes his need. He says, I'm done trying on my own to do this thing called follow Jesus, to be religious, giving that up to focus on the person, Jesus himself. Which is why what he is saying here when he calls the disciples is so significant. Verses 18, he says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You see, what he says to them is, follow me to these fishermen. These were sinful people. These were not good people. These were lost, sinful fishermen who were living in darkness, as we just read in the previous verses. And then he calls them to follow him. This is merciful. The call to follow Jesus is pure mercy. Understand something. Jesus didn't pick them because they were so great. There was nothing desirable or impressive about these men. Nothing special. They were just regular men. They were fishermen. Uneducated. Guys from Galilee that were desperate for God's grace. And Jesus chose them. Were they out looking for Jesus? No. They were living their lives, doing their thing, and Jesus pursued them. No one has ever been saved from their sins because they were out pursuing Jesus. Everyone that has ever been or ever will be saved from their sins, deep down inside, you know this for a fact, that you were pursued by Jesus, that he initiated it. He saved you. You responded to him Every time that you say, I love you, you know what? You're just saying, I love you too to Jesus because he said it first. He said, I love you. And and then inside you said, well, I don't love you. I love my sin. And he said, I love you. I'm going to die for you. And then we're overwhelmed by this. And his spirit begins to draw us. And then we respond and we say, I love you too. That is what Jesus does. He is pursuing people. And so the call to follow Jesus is the call to come out of darkness into light and then is merciful. This is grace to be called to follow Jesus. This is not a burden. This is a tremendous blessing. Out of darkness into light. So the first mark is mercy. The second one is master. So the first mark of disciple is mercy. second one is master. He says, follow me. How do they respond? Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. These four men left everything. They left their careers. They left their nets. They left their boats. This shows they're forsaking financial security. They left their careers. They left their comfort. They left their family. They left their father. And so you see, they're forsaking everything that they knew, everything that was familiar and comfortable. They're leaving everything because they saw more worth, more joy, more value in Jesus. And they said, we're going to orient our whole lives around Jesus. And so here's a question for you to really ponder this week. What does your life orient around? Really, what is your life oriented around? What consumes your thoughts? What gives you the most joy? What do you think about the most? I mean, these are the kind of questions you really ponder. All of us need to ponder, beginning with me, I promise. They said, we're going to have our life oriented around you, Jesus. And when he says to them, follow me, he was not saying, okay, here's a path. I'm a a guru, and I'm going to show you the path to enlightenment. Follow this path, and you will reach wherever heaven or nirvana or wherever you're trying to get here's a path no jesus didn't say that he said i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me he says your soul is burdened you want rest come to me find meaning in me find joy in me it's about focusing on a person the master and so the call to follow Jesus is a call to submit to a person, to Jesus, joyfully. But let's not forget who was asking here. This, this wasn't just some teacher that was wanting to start a movement and he was trying to find followers who was desperate for followers. No, that's not how Matthew presents Jesus as just a good teacher as we hear today. No. You know how Jesus is presented? Matthew chapter 1. How is he presented? Well, he is the hope of all the expectations of people for hundreds of years. And Jesus has come. The promised Savior has come, dating back the lineage all the way to the calling of Abraham. And so what you see is the expectations are all fulfilled in Jesus, like no one else. Chapter 2. You have these wise men that travel hundreds of miles to do what? To lean over a crib and and see a baby. This is very unique. This is not a normal thing to happen. And then chapter 3, John the Baptist declares that the Savior, King of all the nations, who is the righteous judge to rule, that He has arrived. And then heaven opens up, and God the Father says, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then in chapter 4, you have Jesus portrayed when he's being tempted by Satan. He's a new Israel who is in the wilderness, being tempted just like Israel was in the Old Testament. But where Israel failed, now a new Israel, Jesus succeeds being tempted, and he defeats Satan. And he's not only a new Israel, he's also the new Adam who is the head of a new humanity of people that have been born again of the Spirit, who have new hearts, new nature. He's new Adam. 
Everything about Jesus is screaming, He is the living God. And He is absolutely, stunningly glorious. And then you get to the second half of chapter 4 with all of this context. And He says, I've come. I'm the King. I'm here. I'm going to reign forever. I'm here to bring you out of darkness into light. You, sinner, will you follow me? This is mercy. And he's the master. He's the king. And he's asking. But it's far more than that. He's making it very clear who he is. And he's saying, you you can make the choice, but I'm pursuing you. And when Jesus calls, we respond to the glory of God. And following him, Jesus calls us to do this. A disciple really is a lifelong learner and follower of Jesus. So a lifelong committed learner and follower of Jesus. We read earlier in the worship gathering from Luke chapter 9, where we're told, deny yourself, carry your cross, and follow me. And in this very same book, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 to 18, here's what Jesus says to his followers. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. We're called to follow the master, and we're promised to suffer. This is, this is radical, isn't it? Isn't this so unique? That he is saying, follow me. Oh, and by the way, I'm sending you as sheep with wolves, and you're going to suffer. You're going to. He, he guarantees that we will. So why would anyone do this? Why would anyone want to follow Jesus? Why would we want? Because he's worth it. Because you see more glory in him than in anything else. So when someone repents and believes in Jesus, their human spirit is filled with the Spirit of God. Our hearts are changed and we desire to. Now, I'm not talking about holy perfection that will happen in heaven, but what he does do is helps us to have a holy direction in our lives, willing to obey the Master, willing to suffer if that's what he asks us to do. And so are you. Am I? Are we willing to suffer? Do we truly obey the Master? We have mercy, Master, Lastly, as we wrap things up, third principle, the third characteristic is mission. So we have a mission. He tells them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Our church exists. Our mission is to glorify God by making and developing disciples. You have received mercy for a mission. You've been redeemed for a reason. We'll talk about this at length next week where we're talking about disciples making disciples. So we'll save a lot of this for next week when we look at that and how all of us can really engage in this mission together. But following Jesus might be risky. It may be uncomfortable. And we're seeing here suffering really is inevitable, but he is worth it because he gives us more joy than anything else this world has to offer. Now, as, as we do come to a conclusion, I want to take just a couple of minutes and I want to give you two final thoughts on our call to be part of this mission to make more disciples for the Master. One is use your influence in the world. So how do you use your influence in the world? It's really not that difficult. Meet your neighbors. 
make them cookies or make them, I don't know, biscuits, if not American, I guess. Make them something to eat and walk next door and say, hi, I'm your neighbor. I've seen you around. I've never actually met you. Can, can, can we get together at some point? And you meet them and you, and you get to know them. And you intentionally build that relationship so that you can share the gospel when well, opportunity presents itself that God's going to provide for you. When you're at work, you, you share your faith and you can. Don't be deceived. I know it's a Muslim country, but you talk to people about what you believe, ask them what, what they believe, you're not going to get put in jail, I promise. You won't lose your visa. You won't. Just talk about what you believe. Talk about who Jesus is, how he's changed you, the joy you have in him, how he's worth more than anything else to you, how he died to save you, how he is God himself. And they'll tell you what they believe. That's okay. You can hear them. Ask questions. But engage with others. Share the gospel, the good news, the hope you have with others. So use your influence in the world, but also use your influence in the church. As a follower of Jesus, you're called to do both, to serve in the church and serve the world. And this mission has to be accomplished together. I want to take just a second. If you look in your bulletins, I want you to pull off this slip. All of you can please pull it out. There's guys in the back that have pens, so if you don't have one, you can raise your hand and, and we can get you a pen. Now, what, what is this? I, m- I mentioned earlier for guests, and it is, but this is for everyone here in the room. You'll notice on the back where there's ministry teams. There are many different ways for you to get involved and serve your local church, whether it's a care team, which is greeting and following up and making guests feel welcome, children's ministry, tremendous need, communications where we do all kinds of things, and here's information on how we communicate in the church, home groups, If you've led in the past, let me know. You can lead a home group. We'd like to get to know every one of you that are new. I want you to serve. There's missions team, prayer team. You can come early and set up. That's a huge need. We meet in a zoo. It has to be set up. We need help. We really do. Worship team, if you can play or sing. Now that one, you have to know how to play or sing. If if you can't, then like me, just sing with the rest of us. But if you have that gift, we encourage you to come use it. Youth ministry, we need help in that area if you have youth. Now, here's, here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I want you to prayerfully consider, even in these few moments now, where are you going to be a part of this faith family and really serve? Now, if you're a first-time guest, this is not for you, all right? Hey, we're not trying to pressure you to sign up to serve on your first time. We're glad you're here. But if you're a member or if you're a regular attender, then this is for you. This is. And if you're not serving, you're missing out on the pleasure of experiencing God's joy, His pleasure. Worship. This is about worship. This is about being committed to a master and doing it in community. And so I would ask you to check off whichever box either you know you want to serve in or you have questions or are interested in. In a couple of minutes, we're going to have our closing song. And we're going to pass the offering bag. Now, we're not having a second collection for offering. So don't put money in there, all right? This is not for money. This is for these, these slips. 
So you can just drop it in the, in the bag, and then we'll give you a call this week and help you get connected to a ministry where you can experience the joy of serving others. Now, I do want to give a brief disclaimer, something that's very important, something to note. When it comes to the children's ministry, that's a little bit different than the others. The others, we want you to serve where God's leading you. But for the kids' ministry, the expectation in our faith family, so this church, is that if you have children, then you do serve in the kids' ministry. That if you have children in there, expectation is that you do serve in the children's ministry. Now, it's not every week. It's on a rotation basis. And if you're freaked out, like, I've never taught before, that's okay. You don't teach initially. You can go in there and observe and, and just be a helper. But what will happen is you'll get training and you'll learn. And by the way, this is good in two ways. One is good for the faith family because we, we need you to be a part of that and serve. But it's good for your family. It's good for you. Because by being in there and learning how to teach, you can then use that at home when you teach your children. You'll be much more engaged, I assure you, when you're part of what's happening in the children's ministry. So all we're saying is in some capacity, on a rotation, if you're a parent, we expect you to be involved. Again, members and regular attenders, not, not guests, hear me. And so you can mark off children's ministry as well. And we are going to be following up with you, and so just kind of a heads up, that if you are a regular attender, if your kid's under every week, we're, we're going to give you a call and say, hey, so when can you help out on a rotation? So this is something that is a value in our church, that we're doing this together. Disciple of Jesus, not a casual Christian, not a cultural Christian. Disciple of Jesus has experienced first mercy. We recognize our need for it, and we've responded with faith and repentance in Jesus, full trust in Jesus alone. We have a master that we obey, whatever the cost. And we have a mission that we accomplish in the church, but we're fueled here to go do it every day as we live for our Savior. If you're here today and you have never experienced what it means to really know Jesus, if you don't know this person we're talking about, you can know him today. We talked earlier, you just have to repent. Turn away from your sin because you trust in Jesus and he'll save you. And you can do it right now. And if you do, please let me know. I'd like to meet with you and help you grow in your faith. Will you pray with me? Most Holy Father, we are humbled that you would hear us this morning. As we pray this morning, Father, together, we are thankful that you would speak to us through your word, that we would see that your Son is more glorious, gives us more joy, and the rewards are greater with Jesus than anything else, that we're willing to follow him, whatever it is that you ask us to do, whatever the price may be, we want to pay it because we get you, we have eternity, and you satisfy our souls and give us joy, and we thank you. Thank you for our time together. And right now, I pray for anyone in this room that is grappling with what they heard from your word, and I pray that they would turn to truly follow you, Jesus, with repentant hearts for their trusting in you alone for their salvation. We pray it and ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.